Today's scripture reading comes from Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 17. You can follow along in your hymn Bible on page 1008, where you can look on the projection units behind me. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and have and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is the reading of God's word. Please keep your Bibles open to Hebrews 12, and let's pray as we look together at God's Word. Lord, thank you that you are a revealing God, a God who has chosen to make yourself known to your people, who's not hidden from us and sent us guessing, but that you have uh, shown yourself to us uh, in your word and preeminently in your living word, your son, Jesus. 
And so, Lord, it's it's in his name that we seek to hear from you this morning. Amen. Well, 1978, a journalist from Philadelphia wrote about his experience running the Boston Marathon and the point at which he, as runners uh, often call it, quote, hit the wall. Uh, He writes, by now, the rigors of having run nearly 20 miles are beginning to tell. My stride has shortened, my legs are tight, my breathing is shallow and fast, my joints are becoming raw and worn, my neck aches from all the jolts that have ricocheted up my spine, half-dollar-sized blisters sting the soles of my feet, I'm beginning to feel queasy and lightheaded, I want to stop running, I have hit the wall. Now for a marathoner like Art Carey, who's the journalist here, it takes him 20 miles before he hits the wall. For some of us, that distance is much, much shorter. Uh, I remember a few years back deciding that I needed to get into running. Uh, My inspiration for that was actually seeing Drew Halberstadt out for a run one morning. I'm driving to work with a 20-ounce soda in my hand, and there's Drew cruising down Route 30 past Lake Kachichuit, and I'm thinking to myself, this guy's at least three or four miles from home, and he's like trucking, thinking, I I need to get into shape. I need to get in, I need to become a runner. And so that night, I kid you not, I downloaded one of those apps that you could put on your phone that's going to like track your pace and chart your course as you're running. And uh, I put some music on my phone. I've dug out my earbuds and I did some stretches and I, you know, decided to go for a run. I thought in my brain what would be about a mile and a half course through our neighborhood. We were living in Natick at the time and and I took off to go become a runner. I'm going to guess it was less than half a mile in before I hit the wall. <laughs> and, and at that point, I'm thinking, is it easier just to turn around and go back or, or to actually complete the loop that I had, had plotted in my brain? And I decided I'm, I'm, I'm going to push forward. I'm at least going to complete the, route, the loop. Uh, about a quarter mile later, I'm realizing if I'm going to do this, I've got to get new shoes because my feet are absolutely killing me. A uh, few yards after that, I'm thinking about the hamburger I'm going to eat to reward myself for this run. And, and at about a mile, I'm rethinking my entire life at that point. And so you know, every runner, whether expert or novice or wannabe, as in my case, comes to that point where you hit the wall, where you're tired, you're discouraged, you're weary and faint-hearted, you just want to quit. You just want to quit, whether it's the pain that you're presently experiencing, the opposition you encounter, or the attractiveness of doing anything other than running right now. The people on the sideline look like they're having so much more fun. Uh, you know, we get weary, we get discouraged, we're ready to quit. And the author of Hebrews uses this very metaphor to describe the Christian life. It is the race set before us, which we are called to run with endurance and not grow weary or faint-hearted. 
In fact, the language and imagery of weariness or or faint-heartedness of hitting the wall punctuates this section. Verse 5, nor be weary when reproved by him. Or verse 12, the, the drooping hands and weak knees. So what is it that will keep us running? How do we endure and not grow weary amid temptation, amid hostility, amid pain? And, and what exactly does it mean to run with endurance? What are we even talking about? Uh, what does that pursuit look like? How do we keep running and what are we pursuing? Those are the two questions that our author answers in this section. And he does it in three parts. The first two sections answer the question of how. How do we endure? What is our motivation? Namely, look to Jesus and remember the Father's discipline. That's how. And then the last section answers the question of what. What does it mean to endure or to pursue uh, Jesus? And namely, it means pursuing peace and holiness. And so that's where we're going. And we'll start with the first motivation, verses 1 to 3, and that is look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Now, if you've been uh, following along through Hebrews, or if you're familiar with this book, you probably noticed that chapter 12 uh, launches straight out of chapter 11, uh, and the collection of inspiring stories that we looked at last week, this great cloud of witnesses. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that is, you know, people like Abel and Enoch and Abraham and Sarah and Moses and all of these saints of old who endured their race, even though none of them received the prize during their lifetime. Uh, on that basis, he offers his main command here, and which really is arguably the main application of the entire book of Hebrews, right here in verse 1. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's the main application of this book. Run the race, finish well, persevere in faith, hold fast to the gospel, don't drift, don't fall away, don't give up. Hold fast and finish the race. If God was faithful to them to help them finish their race, he will be faithful to you. But then the author takes this inspiration to the next and really the highest level. Not just looking at the examples of all of those who've gone before us, but directing our attention to the chief example, the supreme example, Jesus Christ. Verse 2, run with endurance looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And notice how Jesus is not just another example of faith. Uh, He's not just one in a long list. He's the chief example. He is the author of and the perfecter, the founder and the finisher. He's the beginning and the end of what it looks like to live by faith. 
There is no greater example and no truer motivation than to look to Jesus. And so, how did Jesus endure? How did he persevere in the race set before him? What does his example look like? Well, on the one hand, it's really easy to think that the example of Jesus is not very helpful to us. I mean, Jesus was God. That's kind of like telling me on the basketball court, just do what LeBron does. You know, I can't just do what LeBron does. I don't, I don't have the size, I don't have the talent, the experience, anything like that. That is not helpful advice to someone like me. And so just do what Jesus does might strike us a bit hollow at first when we're thinking about, he's the son of God, of course he endured. He doesn't know how not to endure. But don't forget what Hebrews has taught us about Jesus' humanity as well. Yes, he is fully God, over and above us, perfect, eternal, glorious, all-powerful. But he also became just like us at the same time, fully human, that he might represent us and go before us. Since therefore, back in chapter 2, The children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus became like us. He himself has suffered when tempted. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so Jesus really did run the race. He didn't just seem human. He became human. He ran the course that we're called to run. And because he did that, partly because he knew none of us could actually finish it. None of us could actually run it the way God calls us to run it. None of us could do it perfectly, and so he completed the race for us on our behalf. That's a big reason of why he had to become like us, is to actually represent us in that race and finish for us. He lived a life of perfect covenant obedience before his Father. Gives us the credit for his righteousness, and then takes the blame for our failure. Part of his race was enduring the cross. He endured the cross, For chapter 12 tells us. His race involves taking on himself both the opposition of this world and the weight of our unholy rebellion. So it's, it's on the cross, Jesus was at the same time enduring the wrath of a godless world who opposed him, who humiliated him, who tortured and ultimately killed him. So he's enduring the wrath of a godless world and at the very same time enduring the wrath of a holy God against our sin. Our rebellion, Jesus bore it in our place so that God could deal justly with sin and mercifully with sinners. Jesus endured the cross. He finished his race well. What kind of example does he give us? How did he actually do that? Well, look again at verse 2. He's the founder and perfecter of our faith, 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. When you're running and you want to quit, it's often because we're focused on our circumstances, how much our feet hurt right now, uh, how exhausted we are, how far behind we are, or how much longer we still have to go, how it hurts just to breathe at this very moment. Uh, When you focus on your circumstances, what you're experiencing, it's really hard to find a reason to keep running. But think of Jesus. He lived his entire earthly life under the shadow of the cross. From, he knew from all eternity where this plan was headed, that the story was going this direction. I mean, think about even little things. Like, think about growing up, helping his father with carpentry. If you knew where the story was going, how could you not wince every time you heard the sound of a hammer striking a nail? I think of how he wrestled honestly in the garden on the night that he was arrested. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He knew what was coming. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will, he still endured. And so how did he endure? He focused not on the horror of the situation facing him, but on the hope of glory on the other side, on the joy that was set before him, the joy of resurrection from the dead, of redemption for God's people, the joy of reconciling sinners with a holy God, of realizing all of God's promises, the joy of restoring God's fallen world, of removing sin, of renewing life forever. Jesus ran for the crown, for the prize that was waiting on the other side. He endured because he knew that what was waiting, regardless of the suffering, regardless of the pain, regardless of the hostility and the temptation, he knew that what was waiting was worth it. It was worth enduring to receive the prize of his sufferings. And so it is for us. That prize waiting for us, which Jesus ran and won for us already, is worth it. We too, in following Jesus' example, are called to run with endurance and keep our eyes set on the joy before us as well. If I'm focused on my circumstances, how, how much better others seem to have it than me, uh, how difficult it is to face ridicule from friends who just mock me because of my faith, or, or how hard it is to say no to sin and temptation, how I just feel stuck and tired. If I'm focused on my circumstances, on my situation, it's really hard to find a reason to put one foot in front of the other. But if I keep my eyes on the prize, the promise that this will end well, that God will receive the glory due His name, that there is an inheritance and a crown waiting for me in Christ, 
and that by running faithfully, I can encourage others to finish as well? If I keep my eyes on the prize, I have reason to keep running even when I want to just stop and fall over. Even when I hit the wall. But part of looking to Christ and keeping my eyes fixed on that prize is getting rid of that which steals my focus and my energy. You look back to verse 1. There's something else involved in running with endurance. In order to really look to Jesus well, we need to also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And then run with endurance the race set before us. I mean, you just think about it. How hard is it to run when you're loaded down with a burden? You know, at the Boston Marathon every year, there's always a group of soldiers who run the whole thing in their full gear. 50-pound packs, everything. And I think two things when I see them. That's amazing, and that looks miserable. I mean, there's just no worse way to try and run than loading yourself down. Think of the freedom when they get to that line and drop the pack. But here's the deal. We don't have to run the uh, sound effects involved there. It's just the, our, our makeshift air conditioner over there. Um, we don't have to run loaded down and weary. In fact, you really can't carry your sin with you in this kind of race. You have to leave it behind. He, he calls us to turn away from sin in order to run with freedom and joy in following Jesus. Essential to pursuing Christ is getting rid of sin. It weighs us down, it slows us down, it trips us up. And so we have need for repentance if we're going to run with endurance, of of confessing that sin, of turning away from it, fighting it daily, saying no to temptation, getting help and accountability to avoid it, And walking in the joy of forgiveness and freedom that comes from not... I mean, just even the freedom from guilt itself helps you pick up the pace. When I'm not carrying that burden with me. To be able to run for a prize that actually lasts, that actually satisfies and gives us life rather than stealing it or taking life away. I mean, if you put sin on a scale along with all of the pleasure it promises and everything you think it's going to give you, and then you put Jesus on the other side of the scale, there is just no comparison. There's none whatsoever. And so part of running with endurance is reminding ourselves daily that sin's not worth it, Jesus is better, to set that aside and to look to Jesus and run like Him. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. That's the author's first answer to the question of how. How do we run? We look to Jesus. His second answer comes in verses 4 to 11. Remember the Father's discipline. Remember the Father's discipline. Even when we know that walking with Jesus is hard. Uh, it's still easy to get discouraged and exhausted when that hardship never seems to let up uh, or when it actually gets more intense. 
I mean, we're fighting sin, we're praying, we're, we're pursuing Christ, and we're still battling depression. Or we're still struggling financially. Or we're still marginalized by our friends or stuck in a dead-end job or, or just looking for any job. We feel beat down by the world. And if we're honest, at times we feel a bit abandoned by God. He doesn't exactly seem to care right now. If he did, why would this be so painful? That's what goes through our hearts. And so the second motivation that the author gives us to help us run with endurance is to remember that that the hardship and pain that so often feels like evidence that God is ignoring us or abandoning, abandoning us, it's actually a sign of his love. It's actually a sign of his love. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. God is treating you as sons and daughters. What does that mean? Well, he starts here in verse 4 by reminding his readers that as hard as it is right now, it's not as bad as it could be. Uh, very much a parent tactic. You know, you're complaining now. It could be a whole lot worse. You know, be thankful you've got what you've got. I mean, yes, they've faced intense opposition. Uh, they've been in prison. They've had their stuff stolen from them. But, he says, in your struggle against sin... You've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. It could be worse. And even if it gets worse, that doesn't mean God has slipped off of his throne or abandoned you. Don't forget the exhortation that addresses you as a son. Don't forget that exhortation. And he quotes Proverbs 3 here saying, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. God is treating you as sons. And, and so it's, it sounds strange, it sounds counterintuitive that, that hardship could be evidence of love, but that's what he's saying here. That's what he's saying here, that the hardship you're facing in your pursuit of Christ is not a sign of God's indifference or distance, but of his love. He's disciplining us as sons and daughters. Now, we have a category for that in our human relationships. We understand that parents discipline kids, right? And the author points that out. We have all had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Maybe not until we were older and had kids of our own and understood what they were doing, but eventually you respect them for that kind of discipline. Uh, It's not fun at the time, but it's good for us that we learn those kinds of consequences for poor attitudes or behaviors. And in fact, being disciplined by a parent is a mark that you truly belong to them. You know, for what son is there whom the father does not discipline? Uh, 
If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. I mean, if there's a group of five or six kids causing trouble and you see me get after just one of them, what does that tell you about the one? That that one belongs to me, right? I might gently correct the other ones, but I'm not going to discipline. I'm not going to take away screen or ground them. It's not my job. I'm not their parent. The one who belongs to me I'm going to discipline that child. And, and so it's, it's a, it marks our relationship between a parent and a child, that that child's being disciplined shows you who they belong to and that they're actually loved. Discipline is a mark of true love. It's not the only mark, but it is an essential one in raising children. If I don't discipline my kids, if I don't help them understand that there are consequences for certain behaviors or attitudes, if they never experience that, uh, then I'm actually setting them up for a pretty big failure in life. I'm, I'm nurturing entitlement and disappointment and selfishness and, and, and reckless indulgence rather than helping them understand that they're not the only human in the world and that there's respect and there's purpose and, and, and things bigger than themselves. Discipline is a mark of love. Because it's not about punishment or revenge. It's about nurture. It's about nurture and investment. It's designed to help children grow. Verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. To withhold discipline is to cripple our children from living a meaningful life an honorable life. It is actually to withhold love from them. And we get that in human relationships. Like that doesn't surprise uh, any of us. But it's just as true in God's relationship with us. We've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Sometimes the pain we experience in running our race is actually God's love. Shaping us and forming us that we might share in his holiness. That we might become more and more like him. Kent Hughes explains um, that God's discipline takes three common forms. First, there is corrective discipline. So when God uses hardship to get our attention and move us to repentance, corrective discipline. I mean, you can think of Psalm 119. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. God uses hardship to get our attention in order to repent from sin. Or you think of the hymn that we sang earlier uh, by John Newton. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. It is he who taught me thus to pray and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I just want to grow in Christ. I want to become more like him. That's my prayer. 
and he answers it in a way that almost undoes me. I'd hoped that in some favorite hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Just help me stop sinning. That's all I need. You just move in power to help me stop sinning. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. Crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. You want to become more like me? This is the road. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free. And break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. Sometimes what it takes to help us grow in grace and faith is coming face to face with the depths of our own sin and self-reliance. Being afflicted to the point where all I have left is Christ so that I can see he is actually enough. Corrective discipline. The second is preventative discipline. When God uses hardship to keep us from going down a path. So corrective would be to rescue us from the path we're on. Preventive would be to keep us from going down a path of sin. And you think of Paul's thorn in the flesh uh, here. God had given Paul, the Apostle Paul, the spectacular vision of heaven. Uh, It was something too great for words. And so to keep me from becoming conceited by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Paul's affliction was a reminder to him that God's grace was sufficient and that when he was tempted to think more highly of himself than he ought because of what God had shown him, to remind him, it's not you You're you're not what you're supposed to be boasting in. It's me and my grace. So it was a preventative discipline. And then the third is what Hughes calls educational discipline. When God uses hardship to reveal himself to us. So hardship to pull us off the path, hardship to stop us from going down the path. But then there's hardship that simply reveals God to us. And again, that doesn't make sense to us Uh, But you think of the example of Job. Job did nothing wrong, but he faced unspeakable pain. A pain that his friend said was evidence of his sin and of God's displeasure with him. If you would just own it, confess what you did, then God will relent and everything will be fine. And Job's like, I've done nothing wrong. God did not bring pain into his life because he'd done something wrong, but in order to reveal himself to Job more truly. As Job reflects at the end of the story in chapter 42, he said, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. The relationship that Job had had with God up to that point was like knowing a rumor. I'd heard of you. It was through his pain 
that he, come, he came to see God face to face. And so it was an educational discipline. And, and, and so God does this. He disciplines us for our good that we might share in his holiness. Just because life is hard and the path is unclear doesn't mean God has abandoned you. Doesn't mean God has forgotten you. For his children, your pain is in fact evidence of his love. That he's not finished with you. That there's more to the story. It is for discipline that we have to endure. God is treating us as sons and daughters. And, and that brings us then to the second question that the author answers. So the first question was how? Look to Jesus. Remember the Father's discipline. But then the second question is what? What does that race actually look like? What are we pursuing? What are we enduring? And he answers this in verse verses uh, 12 through 17, but really the answer comes in verse 14. It's to pursue peace and holiness. That's the main exhortation here, to pursue peace and holiness. If the fruit of God's loving discipline is the peaceful fruit of righteousness, and the point is to share in his holiness, it shouldn't surprise us to see peace and holiness in his application here, verse 14. But before he gets to the, to the actual exhortation, he first encourages us to assume a posture of endurance. So the practice is pursuing peace and holiness, but what posture do we take in our run? When you hit the wall and become weary and faint-hearted, your shoulders start to droop, your, your arms are hanging at your side, your legs become heavy and sluggish and weak. But when you're motivated to endure by looking to Christ and remembering the Father's, Father's discipline, that involves a different posture in how we run. And so the author echoes Isaiah 35 and the posture of those who enjoy God's salvation. He says in verse 12, Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. It's like saying, chin up, chest out, pump those arms, and keep running. That's posture of endurance. And, and run after peace and holiness. Run after peace and holiness. That's what we're striving for. Verse 14, for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Holding fast to the gospel means striving for peace taking a posture of peace with one another and toward the world. So, not returning hostility to those who are trying to trip up the church. Uh, not returning hostility or aggression, but instead loving our enemies and offering them Christ. And it means striving to become more like Jesus, to pursue holiness. Without pursuing holiness, we will not see the Lord. Our relationship with God will be affected adversely when we're not actually pursuing Him in holiness. And then the author breaks that down further in verses 15 to 17. He shows us what does that actually look like. And there's three things there. First, pursuing holiness and peace means holding fast to God's grace. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. 
It's the grace of God in Jesus that makes this pursuit of holiness and peace possible. Uh, Peace without grace is pretension. It's just enjoying a temporary absence of conflict. That's all peace is without grace. Holiness without grace is legalism and self-righteousness. But holiness and peace through grace, that's biblical Christianity. It's the grace of Jesus and what he's done for us that makes peace, real peace and holiness possible, becoming more and more like our Savior on the basis of his finished work and the power of his Spirit within us. So we need to hold on to grace. If you let go of grace, everything else falls apart. Second, we need to guard against idolatry, continuing in verse 15. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Now, we often read that verse, and we think it's talking about avoiding uh, becoming bitter in our spirit toward others. And that's a good thing to avoid. Uh, Becoming bitter is not going to help anybody. Um, But that's not what he's talking about here. And and you'll, you'll notice some of your Bible translations will actually put quotation marks around the phrase root of bitterness because this is a metaphor coming from the Old Testament, from the book of Deuteronomy 29, uh, where it's a metaphor for abandoning God's covenant and turning to false gods, idolatry. Uh, Deuteronomy 29.18 says, Beware lest there be among you a man or a woman or a clan or a tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations, beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall be safe though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. So, so running with endurance means holding fast to the true God. And not being caught up in false teaching or idolatry. Not mixing and matching various attributes of deities in order to remake God in my own image. But worshiping God according to his covenant, according to who he has revealed himself to be. And, and when we entertain these false ideas or false ways of relating with God. And, and he describes it as this root of bitterness that doesn't just affect us, but it defiles many. Idolatry is never just a thing between you and God. It will always overflow and affect those around you, those whom you influence. It, it's like what happens when you, stray out of, when you drift out of your lane on the track on a race. You don't just break the rule yourself. You often end up tripping someone else up, and they go crashing, and their race is ruined as well. That's what idolatry, what false notions of God, making God in our own image rather than treating him for who he is, that's what it does to us. It's this root of bitterness that defiles many. So we must guard against that. And then finally, we need to focus our appetites on eternal things and not worldly or temporary ones. So Hold on to grace, guard against idolatry, and focus our appetites on eternal things, not worldly or temporary ones. Verse 16, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, 
who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. I mean, it is so easy when you are discouraged and exhausted and weary uh, to look for the closest and most expedient solution. I'm half a mile into my first run thinking about a hamburger to get me home. You know, uh, Esau, clear back in Genesis 25, came in from the field exhausted and counted a bowl of soup more valuable than his whole inheritance focused on the immediate gratification rather than the big eternal picture. He gave it up for a single meal, and then he was surprised and angry when later on he couldn't actually get it. I mean, it's like you know an athlete who dopes in order to win one race and later complains when he loses his entire career. Should have thought that one through. The same thing happens today when we treasure our own appetites more than Christ, whether our sexual appetite, our material appetite, our physical appetite, focused on immediate gratification rather than the eternal big picture, which doesn't mean we all become monks and deprive ourselves and fast 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The question is, who's serving whom? Does my appetite serve me or do I serve it? And do I fulfill it in a godly way or a godless one? When we live to find our satisfaction in what this world can give us, not only are we going to be disappointed because it won't satisfy, we end up forfeiting what is greater and eternal. So to run with endurance, to strive for peace and holiness means focusing our appetites, our satisfaction, the hunger we feel within us on the joy set before us and not on immediate things that are going to take us off the track. Because we do have a better reward waiting. If your race is a race with Christ, we have an inheritance. What we talked about last week, a better reward, a joy set before us, Therefore, a better motivation that makes our race worth enduring. And we all have need for endurance. Every single one of us has a different story, has a different threshold, a different place where we're going to hit that wall or several of them in a row. We think that that the one we hit can't get any worse than this, and then you turn the corner, there's a bigger one. We all have that story. We all have those temptations to just want to give up and quit. When you feel that, look to Jesus. Remember how Christ endured for the joy set before him. Remember the Father's loving discipline. That even because, just because it's hard doesn't mean God isn't loving you in this very moment. And keep striving for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The race in Christ is worth it because there's nothing better than Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, would you encourage our hearts to believe this? 
Would you encourage our hearts to believe this? Would you help us to remember that none of us run this race alone? Lord, we need each other. And we need you, Lord. It's a lot easier to look to you when we are nurturing our relationship daily than when we're just trying to keep our head above water and we only call out to you when we go under. Lord, would you set our eyes and our hope on Christ? And would you fill our hearts with the grace we need to endure? Lord, would there be great stories of renewal and redemption and repentance flowing from this congregation as we seek to treasure Christ above all things? May there be great stories of others who've come to know Christ as their greatest treasure because they saw the way others were running and enduring. Lord, would you bring about the ultimate goal in and through us, and that is the treasuring of your name. And help us keep our eyes on that greater prize. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.